power on. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Woo! Making that tech talk hotter than you ever thought it could be, baby. It is the Golden Standing, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star. It is the best between your ears in professional podcasting, baby. And I am ready to get into it. And wow, of course, really, it's not just about making it hot. It's about making it applicable, right? It's about making it make some sense. And we have to make some sense of things in this episode. Uh, but I'm going to open it right up with talking about what is, uh, well, for, for some people, this is exciting news for other people. This is, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, for others, it's somewhere in between, but to say that it is, well, you know, here we have on this show for many years, um, we have been on the cusp and have been supportive, uh, and have been reporting on what I think is not unfair to call the Bitcoin revolution. I mean, certainly there's blockchain as well, but you know, the Bitcoin revolution, we're very supportive here of Bitcoin. Um, and while there are always, you know, lots of exciting things going on in that space, uh, you know, be it with lightning and whatever else, you know, there are exciting things happening. It admittedly has been a while in my opinion, since, you know, there's really been something that, that shake things that really shakes things up a lot. You know, it, I mean, it's been a long time. There's lots of bad news to go around in the blockchain space, no doubt. Uh, especially maybe when you look at things happening in Ethereum, um, there's good news too. I mean, there, there are always new, exciting developments happening in that space. Uh, they don't get as much press. I feel like as much as the, the more positive stuff, but what I'm about to tell you, you've probably already heard if you're online in any way, but again, you have people who have varying opinions on this matter and it comes down to this. PayPal has officially announced there were rumors a couple days ahead of time, but now it is absolutely official. PayPal has officially announced that they are going to start accepting Bitcoin, implementing Bitcoin, not just Bitcoin. They did say cryptocurrencies in general, but Bitcoin was the uh, one that is, that has been, you know, touted uh, the largest so far. 
uh, in, it sounds like, I mean, I'm looking at some of the language that's gone around and it sounds like it will be available in PayPal, but then also, uh, it will be in Venmo. Now what, and, and this is in 2021. We don't, I don't believe we have a set date for that. If there has been one, I have not seen it as of the time of this recording. So what's going on here? Uh, well, a couple things to understand, even if it was not getting implemented, say in PayPal, you know, cryptocurrencies weren't getting implemented in PayPal, uh, but rather we're just, we're only going to be in Venmo. We can understand what's going on there. Um, but even then it doesn't exactly matter because around the internet now, and this, they, they started launching this earlier in 2020. Um, you may have seen this already, but now, you know, anywhere that says that has a PayPal button, if or it's not anywhere, but most places that have a PayPal button, you can hold it down and you can actually use your Venmo account instead to pay for it. Even though, I mean, now Venmo was a separate company that got acquired by PayPal a few years ago. Um, even it, it's a funny thing. The relationship between PayPal and Venmo, very strange because you could have all kinds of issues, say with your PayPal account, but you could still use your Venmo account with no problem. Um, and, and I imagine vice versa that, that, that was somehow possible, even though Venmo, I mean, there is the language is relatively clear that they are now owned and operated, um, by PayPal and there is a direct relationship. So, I mean, it, it, it's, it's an odd relationship, but again, regardless of whether or not PayPal proper is going to be implementing cryptocurrencies, my understanding of the language is, is that yes, they are, uh, regardless of how that goes, or even if they just start off, say they, they want to kind of beta test it, you know, in Venmo, um, it really doesn't matter because again, online, most of the time you can use Venmo in place of PayPal anyway, because again, it's the same company. As far as what's going on here. I think what's going on here is concern. Now, PayPal, look, again, I can't tell you, I mean, how many, how many Bitcoin and blockchain conferences have I spoken at over the years? Um, I mean, how many times have we covered it on this show? Uh, we used to have, I mean, there was a time where we had an entire segment and this ran for years that was all about blockchain tech. So we're very supportive here. I'm not knocking this in any way. Um, what, but you know, we, we should talk about it. What I think is going on here. What are the economic forces or the, um, well, they'd still fall under uh, economic, but what are perhaps the, the industrial forces going on here? You know, what are the business forces going on here? Um, what's the competition? And that's really it is that there is competition here. PayPal, I don't think is ultimately sweating Bitcoin itself. Like, I don't think that they're worried that somehow Bitcoin is going to make them irrelevant. Bitcoin should make PayPal irrelevant. Bitcoin should make just about every form of money on the planet irrelevant. You understand? Like, I, I firmly believe that. That doesn't mean that that's what the future is going to look like, but I firmly believe that. In the back of some exec's mind at PayPal, I am sure based on what's happening in the, you know, the, the instability, shall we say in the United States, I am sure that they would love to have, uh, you know, the, the monetary value of, you know, what's quote unquote in PayPal be backed by something other than the U S dollar. Like I, I can imagine that someone is thinking that way. Um, you know, 
not to get doom and gloom here, but I think there are a lot of people who d- would debate whether or not, you know, there's actually going to be a United States, <laughs> you know, by the end of 2020 or, you know, a United States that falls under the auspices of, you know, say its constitution. Um, you know, we've talked about this at times that, and there are others like Douglas Rushkoff and some others, you know, we've talked about this where you know, the average uh, lifespan of an empire is 250 years. And I mean, we're coming up on that in the United States. So it's not like it wouldn't exactly fit a certain historical narrative. Do I think that that's going to happen? Well, it's neither here nor there. Um, but I can imagine that that's going on. And I can, and I think that there are a lot of investors who are, you know, diving deep. I mean, who are absolute whales getting in on Bitcoin right now, new ones. Um, I mean, I think I even just saw a very positive report from Paul Tudor Jones on it and so on, you know, guys that have been in the game, guys, gals, disease, who've been in the game for a long time. They, yeah, I, I mean, and, and I think they're feeling the same, the same squeeze, you know, they're feeling like, Hey, you know, the U S dollar might not be the best thing to be holding right something along those lines. Right. Okay. So I'm sure that's part of it, but what I think is really happening here is, and and I can say this, in fact, when I first heard about it, so, um, you know, and I, I did a review of this, I picked up a newer iOS device, uh, I don't know, a couple of months back, two, three months back, did a full review of it. It's an iPod touch. Um, I just couldn't bring myself to get an iPhone, but, (laughs) but it's an iPod touch. Uh, I mean, latest gen, it, it's in fact, just updated this morning to, uh, you know, iOS version 14.1, it, you know, I mean, this is going to be getting supported for a good long while. Now, when I was deep diving on iOS, it was to refresh myself on that because I mean, again, I'm an Android guy. I've literally written the security guidebook for Android. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm knee deep in that space. Uh, but I wanted to, okay, you know, what's, what, what's iOS feeling like these days? And it had been a while since I've really uh, you know, deep dive to mess with it. So anyway, what the first thing when I went into the app store and I was looking at, okay, what are the number one apps? Because that's what you always hear, right? With, with iOS is that, oh, you know, like the, a lot of developers will only make apps for iOS because whatever they think that somehow people that own an iPhone are just more willing to spend money. I mean, I, I guess that's true because you did dupe them out of a, you know, few extra hundred dollars, uh, to get a less powerful phone than what they could get for less money with Android, but Hey, not here to judge. Okay. Um, (laughs) but anyway, so I'm looking, I'm like, okay, what are these great and hot apps that are only on Apple that, you know, Android's just not on top of now. I mean, there is a difference here and I'll talk about it, but that, you know, you have a ranking in the app store of what are the top apps. You have the same thing in the Google play store. If it's going to be continued to call the Google play store, we'll talk about that in a little bit here during the foreplay where we get into all the little stories. Uh, but I noticed that one of the top apps, I forget which, uh, you know, which category this is under exactly. Cause it might've been just apps overall, but the top app, the number one was the cash app. And I'm like, well, what the fuck's the cash app? You know, I, I, I wasn't familiar with this and I looked it up and went ahead and installed it and everything. And I mean, now, you know, you can donate to Sovereign Tech with the Cash App. That's been true for some months now. Uh, you just use the the money symbol, right? Money sign, and then just Sovereign Tech, S-O-V-R-Y-N-T-E-C-H, just Sovereign Tech. And you can donate to show, and some of you already have, and I'm honored by that. So 
I, I look into this and then I'm wildly impressed by the fact that they take Bitcoin or, you know, they, they have a Bitcoin wallet. They allow you to invest in Bitcoin kind of similar to like acorns acorns, uh, doesn't let you do Bitcoin as I understand it, but acorns, you know, where, where it's working as kind of a quasi bank. Now you got to understand with the cash app, it's a prepaid card. It's not, um, you know, it's not, it's not like a full on uh, bank. And, you know, when you go to buy certain things on certain sites, it'll recognize, Hey, you're using a prepaid card. That's not really a bank and it won't let you do certain things regardless. Um, so cash app, you know, is, is limited in that sense, but, uh, you know, it did allow you to get in on Bitcoin. And I thought that that was dynamite. I'm thinking, well, that, that's, that's a fantastic thing to, to be able to do. And for it to be, you know, a very, very real PayPal alternative, because that's ultimately what PayPal offers as well as like a prepaid card model and so on, uh, that, that you could work with Venmo actually does the same thing as well, but that's really it is if you get where I'm going with this is that PayPal wasn't necessarily sweating Bitcoin, but they were sweating cash app. They were concerned that PayPal slash Venmo was losing a lot of mind share and thus market share to cash app. And one of the things that was really pushing cash app was the Bitcoin community saying, no, if you, you know, if you're going to actually deal in fiat or whatever else, why don't you go with something with a company that, that very much supports Bitcoin, which cash app does. Uh, I mean, it's, it's front and center on the app. So ultimately I think this move is more about PayPal wanting to, uh, you know, recover some, some, or recoup some market share and mind share that cash app is taking away from them. Um, and so, you know, making sure that it's in Venmo, cause really that's the competition more is Venmo versus cash app, even though again, Venmo, PayPal, same thing. Uh, I, I think that's ultimately what's going on. Is there, again, is there an element of, Hey, you know, who knows what the U S dollar is going to be worth? I mean, look folks, you run them, run the numbers. Okay. On the, uh, you, you know, if you consider the U S dollar as an investment, like holding U S dollars as an investment, if you look at the performance of the U S dollar as some kind of investment in comparison to Bitcoin, Bitcoin outperforms the fuck out of the U S dollar. I mean, you know, from, from here to, to, to the Kuiper belt, <laughs> you understand? I mean, it just blows it away. The U S dollar is a horrible investment, or at least it's, it's a rough thing to hold. So <laughs> yeah, that's what I think is going on here. That that's what I think, you know, the real push behind this. I mean, it is interesting that, you know, PayPal was one of the companies that was going to be supporting uh, Zuckerberg's uh, was it the, what, what did they call it? The, the Libra, I think, right. You know, which, which Facebook, other companies were behind and then everybody started pulling out of it. Um, so it's not like, I mean, yes, PayPal has been eyeing cryptocurrencies. That's abundantly clear. They know they exist, but what I think is really going on again, I, I think cash app is just making serious inroads, um, against them. And they, you know, they, they, they got it. They want to do something about that. Now, again, there's never any one reason. And I gave you at least two, and I'm sure there's some other things going on, but you've got that. So as far as, again, what other cryptocurrencies that they're going to support? I mean, I would imagine Litecoin would be on that list. I would imagine Zcash, probably not Monero, uh, just because there does, 
Monero has a lot of the right enemies. And I mean that in a complimentary way, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> meaning that, you know, the, the people that Monero pisses off are the people that a cryptocurrency should piss off. You know, like the government, the U S government, like talk about something they sweat, they sweat Monero and you know, that, that should make you think about, well, Monero, hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, I should be looking at that perhaps, uh, you know, I mean, I'm just saying, and so, you know, I don't imagine that they would get into that. I mean, a lot of these spaces wanting to get involved in privacy coins is, I, I doubt that they really want to want to go there. Also, partly because Apple has a longstanding stance against a lot of these privacy coins. Not that you can't necessarily work, you know, that there aren't works around that, but um, it, it is an interesting thing to, well, it's an interesting point to bring up. But regardless, yeah, I, I'm not sure exactly which ones that they are going to end up supporting. Maybe they'll just go down the Coinbase list. I don't know, though it seems like Coinbase will take almost any coin these days. Uh, re regardless, we will see what happens in 2021. And hey, you know what? They might back out. This might be some kind of weird investment play going on because Bitcoin did uh, bump rather nicely by at least a couple grand. Uh, just in the past couple days since the announcement was official, um, you know, it was hovering around 11 K bumped up to above 13 K. So, I mean, there, there could just be some kind of weird play here. I, I gotta tell you, there is, there is a big part of me that feels like I won't believe it until I see it, but regardless, you know, crypto value goes up, crypto gets taken more seriously. Hey, I, you know, I'm, I'm on board with that. Uh, as far as why people, I think, think that this is somehow a negative, that this is a bad thing is because, well, we don't want PayPal to, you know, we don't Bitcoin. We don't want the established system getting involved, right? We don't want the legacy banking system, which PayPal is a part of. We don't want them involved with Bitcoin. I understand that. All right. In fact, I am a big proponent of, you know, cause ultimately this is Bitcoin, you know, getting involved in the, you know, you could argue getting involved in the legacy banking system game. Uh, I'm a big proponent of the concept that, you know, if you beat, uh, if you beat someone at their own game, you've actually lost because you're already playing their game. And I've always loved Bitcoin because it does its own thing, you know? And I've said for many years on this show, it's like, look, you know, if grandpa wants to buy something online, he can just use PayPal or he can use whatever, you know, that makes it simple. He's not going to go with Bitcoin, but that's okay. Grandpa doesn't have to accept Bitcoin for Bitcoin to do what it needs to do, right? Bitcoin just needs to help us effectively build Rivendale, right? That, 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 that's what we, that's, that's what we need Bitcoin to do. Like let, let us build that little thing off to the side or not so little. The system, we don't need the system. Okay. And, and I, so understand that I sympathize or empathize and, and under, I know sympathize is the better word. I sympathize with people who hold that this is not a good thing. Um, I get, believe me, I get where you're coming from. I really, really do. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there is that big part of me that, that, that thinks of all the journalists, all the outlets, all the investors that said, Oh, Bitcoin is dead. Bitcoin is dead. And they've been saying it for a, a, over a decade. Clearly it ain't dead. <laughs> not, not when PayPal saying, give me, give me, give me that digital currency. Right. So I'll take that for what it is. Um, but again, I really do understand where, you know, if there are people who think that this is a negative, not negative in that Bitcoin is bad negative as in that PayPal is bad, 
I, I get where you're coming from on that. All right. So anyway, let's get into, we, we need to get into some other news here. Frankly, that could have been our main story, but anyway, let, let, let's, let's get into this. Uh, this is an interesting little talk about confusion, right? <laughs> Wait, is it PayPal? Is it Venmo? You know, talk about naming confusion. Uh, actually we're, we're running into like, there are massive shifts happening at Google. Now I had this lined up to talk about this and you'd think, what could any of this possibly mean for the larger scale, uh, um, you know, how could this affect Google on a larger scale or be representative of what's happening at Google and to Google on a larger scale when we end up with Chromecast with Google TV? How does that relate to anything, <laughs> you know, outside of maybe Disney Plus or Netflix, right? Well, <laughs> I think there's a lot going on here. Um, and part of that has to do with well, right now we know it, there is a major, major, and it's not just in Europe though. It started there, but in varying States in the United States, and it might get to the point, I'm not going to deep dive on this subject right now. Cause I think we need more details, uh, you know, before we, we can really give a full analysis on it. Um, but we know that, uh, varying States are prepping, accusing already, you know, a, a massive antitrust case against Google. And I think, again, we're not going to get into a full analysis here. I will say this. I think that, I mean, there's no way Google didn't know. Again, it already started in Europe and they already had to, you know, they already, already had impetus to take some actions that would get them out of uh, uh, antitrust waters, as it were. Um, but, I'm, I mean, let's be clear here. I've said this for years you know, considering the Microsoft versus DOJ case from the late nineties, early aughts, you know, a, a big part of that case was that the web browser was required to be, uh, you know, in on wind, like installed automatically with windows. I have, I, again, I've been saying this for years and I've, I'm actually fairly supportive of Chrome OS in many ways. It is a very secure platform maybe not private, but it is very secure. It made no sense to me how Chrome OS is allowed to exist based upon, you know, the, the, the quote unquote findings, the, the discovery and the, you know, the legislation from Microsoft versus DOJ. So this is something that was, you know, a long time coming. I think they're even saying that really this case has been a decade in the making. Well, at the very least now, you know, <laughs> at least it's not one of the contradictions that exists around Google and the government um, that, well, no, they have been planning for a good while to go after them. Like I said, I mean, every reason that they went after Bill Gates, every reason that the U S government went after Bill Gates, they have to go after Google every single one. Now, I think that, you know, part we were talking about, and, and this is going to get into a broader subject here. We were talking about, uh, in a recent episode, about two episodes ago, we were talking about how they said, how Google said that come Android uh, 12, they are going to play, Android will play a lot nicer with third-party app stores, right? Or third-party app repositories. 
possible to do now, right? F-Droid or Amazon's app store and so on. You just, you know, you have to check a button or, you know, you have to hit a little checkbox to make it happen. Um, one, and I do consider that a genuine advantage over iOS, uh, but that they were going to make it more of a feature, something that they were going to allow for more. Now, part of that, I think, is really to eliminate um, this, you know, maybe the, the look of monopolizing that Google has over uh, the Android platform. And this is just one more thing that, that Google can point at, or ultimately Alphabet, really. But it's one more thing that Google can point at that says, oh, no, 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 we're, we're not engaging in monopolistic practices. Anybody can install any app store that they want. They don't have to fall in line, uh, you know, with Google. So I think, I think that's part of what's actually going on there. Okay. Um, now the other part here is that Google is going through a major rebranding for the first time in a very, very long time. Um, the Gmail icon has completely changed. Now there is a, a unified iconography among Google services. Uh, some of them, frankly, look, you know, I don't really care about look that much. Okay. Um, but you know, if I was to look at you drive, Google drive looks really odd, right? Because they had to add in that other color because Google drive originally, you know, didn't have like the red in the, in the, the logo in the icon for it. Now they had to like, just splash in a little bit of that red. I, I just something about it looks off. It looks like my screen's broken or something, but partly that's because you get so used to the look of the icon for Google drive that, wow, you know, that's a shift. Same thing with, with Gmail. I mean, when you go to Gmail now and, and you see that just, you know, the, the squiggle line, that's the M, uh, which was a brilliant, you know, for the M to look like the envelope. I mean, that, that, that was just brilliant marketing and iconography on their part. Uh, I'm not saying that it's necessarily a bad move, but it is interesting that that's happening. And I think ultimately this is leading to a massive rebrand strategy that really is going to get rid of one word, one word from, um, you know, well, actually it's going to be two words, but one word from Google's offerings. And that is the word play. Now Google play has been a horrible name for a long time, but one place where, you know, and originally it wasn't originally called the Android market. It wasn't originally called Google play, but one place and this speaks to that offering other app stores to get installed one place where Google play doesn't make sense. So again, understand the strategy here that's going on and how does this all go to Chromecast and Google TV? Just be patient. I've got you covered here. If enter, if in the enterprise space, okay, if Android 12 is allowing for third-party app stores to be installed, and this is to, you know, make, as we talked about in the episode when we first announced that, or when we were first reviewing that matter, as soon as you allow for third-party app stores, okay, and you make them like a feature, like a full-on feature that you, hell, you promote. And again, I think they feel they have to promote this to negate these antitrust uh, uh, allegations. Because while the antitrust allegations at this point in time may not have to do with Android, you, you better believe eventually they're going to. And you know who's putting money up against Google for part of this. I mean, you know, who's, who's lobbying hard and that's none other than Larry Ellison, right? I mean, the, the whole Java Android, you know, the score anyway, I mean, if you're remotely familiar with that history, you, you know, that there's money going. A lot of people want to see Google get hit, uh, over this. So, or in any way, really. 
So anyway, um, now Google, while they, you know, to, to avoid antitrust allegations, while they will allow businesses to install their own app stores, perhaps, or maybe allow for like a Microsoft app store, which I theorized and talked about, and I think would actually be a great move on Microsoft's part. Okay. I mean, they're already knee deep in Android anyway, might as well come out with your own app store. Um, and especially since Microsoft offers a replacement for anything, literally anything minus maps, even though they could still do that. Uh, but they offer a replacement for anything that, that Google has on offer. Again, Microsoft doesn't own here maps anymore. They did for a while due to their Nokia acquisition, but that that's no longer true. Anyway, regardless. Okay. Um, so, but here's the thing is that obviously Google doesn't want to lose that business, right? They, I mean, they do crazy money with G suite. In fact, they don't even call that G suite anymore now, right? It's called G workplace. You see how everything's getting, how everything's or Google workplace. Everything is shifting. Everything is changing. There are terms getting taken away. G suite doesn't really explain what exactly you're getting Google workplace. Oh, now that makes sense. This is where I get work done. Okay. Now, as far as getting work done, again, where Google makes its money is in the enterprise space, just like Microsoft. Microsoft makes its money in the enterprise space. Office 365 is a multi-billion dollar business for Microsoft. They don't need Xbox. They don't need Windows. They could do it all on Office. They can make all the money off of Office alone. You understand? Okay. So this rebranding that's happening, Getting rid of the term play is essential because if you went to work and you go to the Google play store to get your work apps, wait a minute, wait a minute. You go to the Google play store to get work, play, work, play, work. These are two, these are in the English language, the, the horrid mercantile language that it is. Those are, you know, polar opposites. So there's, already a problem of association that if Google wants to stay relevant in the workplace with what's coming with Android 12, as well as perhaps other, you know, issues happening, they've, they've got to dump the word play. They've got to get rid of it because it's just, you know, it's anachronistic to, to what they're trying to do. And again, it's a horrible name in the first place, but I think this may, there is clearly a major rebranding going. Okay. Now the other part that they have to get rid of, and this probably has more to do with the antitrust cases, uh, is getting rid of the term Chromecast. So the new Chromecast came out recently, uh, runs about 50 bucks. I mean, we could talk about the specs, you know, it can do uh 4k Dolby vision, you know, or it can do 1080p, which I don't think you need more than 1080p, but whatever, uh, you know, wireless AC, right. Um, one of the interesting things is, is that it's so powerful. You actually can't just plug it into the USB port on your television. It has to be powered separately. That's an important, that, that's interesting, but I mean, not, not the biggest deal in the world with this. Um, but it has, um, eight gig of onboard storage. It is using a separate version of Android called Android TV. Again, this speaks to where there is a separation where not everything is all under one app store or all under, um, you know, say all under one umbrella with, you know, just like one version of Android out there. Okay. So, and now it gets confusing because we've already had over the past 10 years, we've already had something called Google TV. We've already had something called Android TV. 
right? Which were very different things than what we're talking about here. So Chromecast with Google TV, that's the official name for it, is prepping you to get rid of the term Chromecast, probably because, and until these antitrust cases started really popping up in America, I mean, in Europe's one thing, you know, uh, it was the same deal with Microsoft where they had to deal with that in, in Europe, uh, you know, before the DOJ case happened here. Um, this, you know, they're getting you ready to get rid of the term of like having Chrome be in the name of everything. Okay. Also, because the device works, the, you know, the Chromecast with Google TV, because it works independently and you install the apps on the device itself, you don't just stream it from your phone. That creates a separate platform. Again, having that separation doesn't make it look like you have one dominant OS that, you know, does everything, which is exactly what basically what Microsoft ran into with Windows and Internet Explorer. And to get rid of the term Chrome away from it is more of that separation because, again, we'll, we'll get a fuller analysis on the antitrust case, but Chrome's got to come up into the picture saying, Hey, wait a minute. Like, like you, you don't get to now. I mean, here's the funny thing is that in fact, I've talked about this. You can install because of, you know, because of Linux app support, not just, not just play store support because of Linux app support in Chrome OS, you can install the Tor browser on, I mean, just natively, you know, you get into the terminal, pop it in and away you go. Uh, and it works really, really well. And I recommend it. In fact, um, we, we've already covered that. We've already talked about it. So ironically, you, you actually can with enough finagling, you can get a separate web browser running on Chrome OS. It does not have to use Chrome itself. Um, but you know, I, I imagined that'd be easy to throw out saying, oh yeah, but you have to do this, 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 and can you put Firefox on there now without running cross? Oh, this is terrible. You know, blah, blah, blah. Chrome is, we gotta, we gotta separate it. We gotta separate it. So, you know, I, there's, there's a massive shakeup happening here. Google is sweating it. They are trying, I think, to be a little, little iterative, a little slow of the new rollout, but come, you know, end of 2021, I think just about everything we used to call Google's products or what we used to like really expect, say Android to do. And so on, a lot of that is going to dramatically shift In fact, the term Chromecast might die, you know, and they just, they'll call it like Google cast or Google TV cast or something like that. Um, or it'll just be the Google TV device. Now, I mean, the device itself looks fine. Um, I, I'm intrigued by it. I mean, I have a Chromecast here in, in the BDSM studio three, ultimately, you know, just speaking from a device perspective, I like having the apps go directly to the device, uh, you know, instead of it streaming from and using, you know, Wi-Fi basically, instead of it streaming and using the Wi-Fi, uh, you know, from my smartphone or having to use the pin system or something, I'd much rather it just be, you know, something that you independently enter. Uh, obviously there's a play with Google TV, no pun intended there on the play. Cause like I said, I really think they're going to end up getting rid of that branding in general. What are they going to call the app store? I'm not exactly sure, but that I guarantee you that name's going to change very soon. Very, very soon. Um, but I mean, obviously they, they want to, cause they're not giving up on stadia yet, which good because Google gives up on all kinds of things <laughs> often far too quickly um, or for no real reason, which is why I don't rely on Google products in any way, shape or form because 
you know, you never know tomorrow it could be gone. Um, I'm sure they're, they're looking for a stadia play with Google TV. That's another reason that they're starting to schlep out, uh, you know, Chromecasts or what are glorified Chromecasts with onboard storage on them. Um, but that's, that's something that we'll see going into the future. Uh, but you know, speaking of things getting shut down and speaking of streaming services, I'll make this boy. I had so much other news I wanted to get into here in the opening. Um, but we need to get into a main story here, but I got to tell you, I'm so happy about this. Oh man. Queeby. I know if you don't know what, when I said Queeby, if you don't know what that is, Satan bless you. Like that, that's, <laughs> that's wonderful. I'm so glad you have no idea, but I mean, if you've gone on Twitter in the past eight months at all, or really any platform, any social media platform of any kind, you were bombarded before it even officially launched. And I think it officially launched in April. You were bombarded with these asinine commercials for what, in my opinion, look to be asinine shows uh, for this new streaming network called Quibi. And the, the rub here that they were, to, or the, you know, the differentiator that they were going for was that all of their content was around eight minutes long. So it was meant to be like television series and content that you could effectively consume um, between, I don't know, bus rides or like on a quick bus ride or something along those lines. That was the idea is that, well, you're constantly, you know, uh, uh, stopping and pausing and maybe losing your place of what you were watching on Netflix. So if we just make the content shorter, you'll consume more of it. Certainly there's a bit of a YouTube mentality or even a Vine or TikTok mentality there, uh, you know, going on. Um, you know, you can, uh, let me make no mistake here. You can make beautiful things that are only eight minutes long. You really can. Okay. Uh, in fact, I just released a new, well, actually it's not eight minutes long. It's about 15 minutes long. I just released a new album for audio of the ancients, go to audio of the ancients dot X, Y, Z, uh, you know, like ancient humans. And, uh, I just released a, a new, a new album on there, which is a whole, well, it's called the 400 year Stila of, uh, Ramesses the second. And, you know, that's short form content that, you know, I mean, and, again, it's all based off of, you know, this, this Egyptian text, uh, you know, that I, I think is, is very, uh, enriching if I was going to use that word. Um, so I'm not saying you can't do something amazing in eight minutes, but to hold somebody's attention for eight minutes, you have to, especially for the, not the demographic demographic is certainly a thing, but for the, it's not even geography. I don't know. What would you call it? The geolocation? The, the time frame the, to the space within, I mean, it, you have to use this very general term. I'm sure they have some kind of weird ass marketing term for it, but the, where they expected you to consume that content is not conducive to really being able to pay attention to something. And so I feel like it would have, and, and what little I saw that was on Quibi just looked like mind numbing stuff. I mean, absolutely mind numbing. Like there's no way you didn't walk away from it with less brain cells or at the very least, you know, less thought patterns and uh, <laughs> no, uh, so <laughs> but the thing that really annoyed me with Queeby was the just incessant advertising and everybody, and you know, they're fake or sock accounts or they're being paid to, to promote it. 
everybody talking about it on, you know, on Twitter, it was just, it was nonstop. You couldn't get away from it. And so when I heard it, so it ended up shutting down. Now, part of the reason is again, those spaces where you're supposed to like, you know, where that work, where Queeby was trying to deliver content to you, because you know, you should always have a screen in front of your face. You should always be watching something, even when you're just walking down the street or whatever, pay no attention to what is happening around you. Mupron, you need to be watching something on Queeby. Well, those spaces have become effectively nil, uh, frankly, ever since COVID-19 became a thing. And so six months later, after Quibi went live, it is now shutting down. In fact, ironically, a day after the Apple TV app finally came out, uh, of course, that wasn't like important for them because they don't need you to watch it on Apple TV. They don't want you watching it at home. This is something you're supposed to be watching, uh, you know, while you're walking down the street so that you can fall into a manhole or run into people, right? Uh, I'm just, I'm so glad that this no longer exists. But the part that, that actually kind of pisses me off they raised $2 billion to launch this thing. That's $2 billion in six months down the drain, just gone, wasted. But I mean, all of us knew, you know, I mean, I, I could get into this, you know, the, the argument of why this was a horrible idea to begin with, but that's just it. Like it was a horrible idea. And well, whatever investors spend money where they, they spend it. I don't expect any actual intellect from 99% of investors. There are brilliant investors out there, no doubt. Okay. And I will applaud them when I, you know, when I talk about them and when I know them, but most of them, yeah, I mean, you, you couldn't predict COVID-19, you know, and, 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 and uh, we could go down all kinds of roads with this, but bottom line, I, you know, one less streaming service, and one less streaming service that is real. Again, I know you can create great art inside of eight minutes. You can create great art inside of eight seconds if you know what you're doing, but you know, that's not what they were doing. You know, that that's not what that was about. It was all about just how do we get eyes on this? And it's just great to see a really, what I think is ultimately a depressing project just fall apart. And, and again, one less streaming service. We don't need any more. We don't need, we frankly don't even need the ones that are out there, but that's, that's a whole other conversation. So no more Queeby and who knows what else is happening at Google, uh, but Bitcoin on the rise, not a, not a bad little foreplay to get into. Anyway, I'll be right back with uh, a bit of our main story and we've got lots more, lots of different subjects to get into. on Sovereign Tech. I'll be right back with more. Hey, is Sovereign Tech not enough for you? Well, let me tell you about something you'll never get enough of. No, no, I mean it. We're talking about a radio show and podcast that goes all night long, seven nights a week, three hours a night, 365 days a year, and has been going since the early aughts, baby. I am talking about none other than Free Talk Live. It's the show you control. That's right. It's an open phones call-in show that is ready for you. And if you're worried that your voice isn't going to get heard, don't be. We are talking about the only libertarian radio show stateside. And not only that, it's also the number 26 talk show in the United States. Start listening now and go ahead and hit that massive back catalog at freetalklive.com. The Golden Stallion guarantees a good time. And you might even find some episodes with me on them when you do. That's freetalklive.com. And we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Let's get back to the show. 
the main story. It is time for the main story. You know, another point I wanted to really bring up um, with Google TV. I mean, it's interesting how so many companies, I mean, Apple is kind of doing this and, and there's a funny, there's a very odd, well, here, let, let me break this down. So initially, okay. Um, in the nineties and, and we've covered this subject before, but over the years on sovereign tech, what, what haven't we covered <laughs> over the years on this show? Uh, you know, please feel free to hit the back catalog at any time. I mean, we've been going, you know, this is episode 393, and that's not even counting all the Zomi One Underground content. There's a whole other 400 episodes of that um, with new episodes coming all the time. Um, anyway, so, yeah, we've covered a lot of things. But so the concept in the 90s, you might have heard the term a lot, the information superhighway. Now, when most people heard that, they basically thought that that was the World Wide Web, you know. And, and, but it, it's not, it's not analogous with the internet. Okay. In fact, even the World Wide web and internet are two very different things. The internet has multiple protocols on it, right? Uh, the World Wide web just happens to be one of them. Email is another IRC is another and so on. So the information superhighway was actually like different content besides your, you know, whatever you watch besides your television shows or movies, but different content coming to you through the television screen. That was the information superhighway. And it was meant to be more of a one-way street if we're, you know, to continue with the highway uh, uh, terminology. Not as interactive as we would end up having for much of the history uh, of the internet, you know, with, with, with PCs, you know, and so on. So, but the, the, that was the plan initially, you understand, was that you were to experience this different content that most people considered to be, you know, part of the internet. You were to experience that through your television. It's not uninteresting that Apple, Google, many companies are reconcentrating and in many ways doubling down on the television uh, proper, you know, the television as a device. Not so much even the smartphone, but the television. And granted, you could say, well, you know, the smartphone's kind of overcrowded, so innovation has to happen with a different screen now because innovation clearly isn't happening. I mean, just look at the iPhone 12. You're going to tell me that's innovation? Give me a fucking break, right? Uh, this isn't our main story, by the way, but just, just putting it out there. I, I do think that there is, I mean, and look, part of the problem with the information superhighway is a problem with television in general television, not as in the physical device, but television as in the abstract concept is that you don't have a whole lot of control. Kind of like ironically, Steve jobs would say, you know, when you turn on the television, you turn your brain off. When you turn on the computer, you turn your brain on. How true that is still to this day. That's up to some debate. I'm sure. But regardless, I'm sure that, Google, Apple, lots of other companies today would love to have far more control over what information, you know, appears in front of you. Uh, in fact, this is going to speak to uh, a, a major part of our main story. But in this case, the controlling of information was done on Twitter. Now, 
we need to be very clear about this. This is not necessarily, even though the claim might be that this is around fact checking and blah, blah, blah. Let's just, let's read it. Now. I don't like the source I'm reading this from. Okay. I'm, <laughs> I really don't care about Fox news, but uh, let, let's read a bit of their coverage on this Twitter. This is from October 15th. Okay. So just a few days ago. Twitter locks official Trump campaign account over sharing Hunter Biden video. Hunter Biden, of course, being the son of U.S. asshat uh, candidate, I'm sorry, presidential candidate, uh, Joe Biden. So here we go. Uh, Trump campaign fires back. Uh, This is election interference, plain and simple. What exactly happened here? Let's read a bit of the story from the horrendous Fox News. Twitter suspended the official account of the Trump campaign. Now, again, they didn't. They didn't suspend the POTUS account, which, as we've said many times, particularly with Trump on it, should have been done years ago because he is repeatedly threatening violence against not only uh, other nations, you know, not just uh, against foreign powers, as it were, but also domestically. He has repeatedly, repeatedly threatened violence against tens, hundreds, even sometimes millions of people. But, you know, and and that's clearly laid out in Twitter's terms of service that you are not allowed to engage in, you know, threats of that nature, but he does it every day. I guess they say it's okay because for him, you know, it falls under politics, but then is all politics violent? Hmm. That's a thought. Well, anyway, because you know what is what is politics as uh, as as President uh, President Obama said years ago the monopoly or the the monopoly on the use of force hmm. sounds violent to me anyway let's keep going uh, so <laughs> here we go uh, Twitter suspended the official account of the Trump campaign on Thursday saying Team Trump's tweet calling uh, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden a quote unquote liar. And I mean, he's a politician. How is that inaccurate? Uh, and posting of, I mean, Trump is too, but let's keep going, you know, a liar anyway. And posting a video about Hunter Biden's business dealings is a violation of its policy. The action comes just 19 days before election day. Quote, your account can be, has been locked and quote, the standard Twitter message read quote, what happened? We have determined that this account violated the Twitter rules specifically for uh, violating our rules against posting private information and quote, quote, you may not publish or post other people's private information without their express authorization and permission. And quote, the post reads the Trump, uh, the Trump campaign tweet in question read quote, Joe Biden is a liar who has been ripping off our country for years. And quote, the campaign also posted a link to a video about Hunter Biden's overseas business dealings, uh, specifically referring to the New York post, which published emails suggesting Hunter Biden introduced his father, then the vice president, to a top executive at Ukrainian natural gas firm Burisma Holdings in 2015 at Hunter Biden's request. Fox News has not independently verified the reporting. So the issue here becomes, Stanley breaking in, the issue here becomes the story by the New York Post. Let's keep reading. The emails turned up in the hard drive of a laptop dropped off at a repair shop in 2019, the Post reported, adding that a copy of the hard drive ended in the hands of Robert Costello, a lawyer for Rudy Giuliani, a personal attorney for for, for President Trump. Uh, However, a Trump campaign official pointed out that the campaign's video that it posted is still visible on Trump's own Twitter account. 
so they took down the Trump campaign Twitter account, but they did not take down the POTUS account, right? Got that? Okay. Quote, this is election interference, plain and simple. For Twitter to lock the main account of the campaign of the President of the United States is a breathtaking level of political meddling and nothing short of an attempt to rig the election, end quote. Trump campaign communications director Tim Murtaugh told Fox News, quote, Joe Biden's Silicon Valley pals are aggressively blocking negative news stories about their guy and preventing voters from accessing important information. This is likely something from communist China or Cuba, not the United States of America, end quote. Oh, boy the politics. Uh, anyway, they, they go on. Oh, this is chilling censorship, blah, blah, blah. Let's read on a little more. The Trump campaign has posted the entire New York post article on its campaign website in an effort, effort to sidestep the social media suppression. Twitter said Wednesday, the New York post article was in violation of its hacked materials policy. What does that mean? Let's read the company's 2018 policy prohibits the distribution of uh, content quote obtained without authorization End quote, uh, Twitter doesn't want to incentivize hacking or circulating, quote, possibly illegal obtained materials, end quote. Now, this gets into very, very murky waters, right? Twitter, I believe, tried to clarify. Actually, let me read this next paragraph here, quote, because this is from Twitter, quote, commentary on or, on or discussion about hacked materials, such as articles that cover them but do not include or link to the materials themselves, aren't a violation of this policy. Our policy only covers links to or images of hacked materials uh, themselves, end quote. Now, again, it was going to the New York Post, so that's kind of weird. And it got to the point, as I understand it, that you could not even share the link of the New York, like if you tried, no matter who you were, and in fact, an editor of the New York Post tried to do this on the 15th, I believe it was, or maybe it was the 14th. A New York Post editor, and, and folks, like, let, look, I'll be the first to tell you that, I mean, so many of the institutions of journalism uh, out there are, I mean, they, they are dinosaurs, okay, <laughs> you know, and they are just waiting to become fossil fuels. But you know, in the popular mindset, no, people still think that when the New York, uh, New York times says something that it means something, even though we've been proven over or it's been proven over and over again, that they will absolutely falsify reporting, falsify information. Uh, they will lie. Or, you know, people still think the Washington post somehow matters, even though they're in the back pocket of, you know, who, People still think, well, whatever, you know, people still give some degree of credence to these dinosaurs of news coverage. The New York Post happens to be one of those dinosaurs, okay? Um, I mean, as much as I think any of these uh, journalistic, quote-unquote, institutions uh, will BS and have no problem doing it to fit whatever agendas they've got going on, they, they can't like get away with it whole cloth, right? There still has to be some semblance of accountability and there still has to be somewhat of a higher standard. Okay. Uh, to at the very least keep up the, the illusion, the mirage that journalists are somehow, you know, doing great work. I mean, there are journalists out there, folks that are doing great work. You know, I mean, Associated Press still kind of does good news, you know, Reuters, I mean, maybe, but you, you get what I'm saying. There is an illusion that has to be upkept. New York Post is a major part of that illusion that, well, what they report on isn't just, 
you know, it's not just, uh, it's not national inquirer stuff, right? So for the New York post to get targeted effectively by Twitter, and that's what happened. And you weren't allowed to share this story is unbelievable. Uh, I mean, it really fucks with that mirage. I'll tell you that. And it makes you wonder, you know, because again, the New York post, you know, they're, they're doing a story on this whole thing to, to, you know, to suggest that, and, and Jack Dorsey came out, you know, and said, Hey, we, we, I mean, he made a whole, the whole tweet about it, basically saying, um, you know, we did not communicate well, what happened here? Like this was not about, you know, hack materials because all the policy violations that they brought up didn't exactly make sense with what the New York post was doing. And even with what the Trump campaign account was doing, it didn't make sense that they were ended up, ended up getting, you know, shut down over this. So it does feel like political finagling. I don't agree with Trump on anything, but this does feel like political finagling on the part of Twitter, no doubt. But bottom line being is that if Twitter finds a certain story, uh, a problem, and that's all we have to call it a problem, it can't get posted on Twitter. It will get shut down. Your account will basically get shut down. Now your account getting shut down for, you know, willy nilly for any reason, uh, you know, that doesn't surprise anybody right now, but the fact that there is not, there's absolutely not allowed a free flow of information, even from what's supposed to be right. The, the recorder of man's deeds, you know, the printing press that's supposed to hold everybody honest and accountable when the New York, when you can't even share a story from the New York post, look, it's not Julian Assange, even though he got away with quite a bit on Twitter, you know, it's not like this or that, this is the New York fucking post. And when you can't share a New York, a story from the New York post on Twitter, I ask you this, even in, if you're thinking conventionally of what worth is Twitter? Because we're not talking about conspiracy horse shit. I mean, you can claim that it's some kind of conspiracy in the broader sense of the term, but we're not talking about Alex Jones style stuff. We're not talking about anything along those lines. We're talking about, this is a, this is, you know, a straight up story. This is quote unquote, for what it's worth, serious journalism on the part of the New York post being told by Twitter, you're not allowed to share the story. Now, Twitter backtracked on the whole thing. Cause I think they knew they got caught red handed. The little blue bird got caught red handed. But a platform is absolutely meaningless if you can't share. I mean, I mean, you know, and, and let's be granted. And I know other sovereign tech listeners said this online. Yeah. I mean, if this happened to, you know, any little blog, uh, the decision would have stood like, no, you can't share this. Uh, you know, you can't share this story from this blog. Um, even if it was the, you know, the best journalism journalism done in human history, you cannot share it on this platform. Uh, that decision would have stuck. There would not have been a repeal like there was in the case of the New York post, but this, I mean, this is censorship as bad as it gets. If you think if you had any, if you thought that somehow on Twitter, that some kind of really earth shattering truth would be allowed there you know, something that would strike the root, something that would shake the system up, something that would, I don't know, maybe even bring down a bad guy, 
you know, they happen to be in office or something or wasn't in office or whatever, you know, however that works. Um, I hope that illusion has been finally wiped away. You have rubbed your eyes and the illusion's gone. I mean, yes, you, you could say, well, you know, sovereign tech, uh, speaks, um, you know, speaks truth to power and whatever. And it's, there's some very, uh, uh, incendiary things, nothing violent, but incendiary things said on this show, uh, that could really, you know, shake up the system or something. And I'm honored if you feel that way. I mean, I've had people say that on Twitter. Sure. Um, but again, you know, if, it, if, if sovereign tech were at a larger scale, oh, I, I know my account would be banned and it's ironic because I'm the most peaceful fucking person on the end peaceful and non-judgmental and accepting person on the fucking planet. I mean, maybe not literally, but you know, <laughs> I'm in that number, but it would get taken down in a heartbeat. There is, you know, th this speaks to the point I made earlier. If you beat someone at their own game, you've lost because you, you already fell into the trap of playing their game. Trying to change the system, trying to, and, and this speaks to Bitcoin as well earlier, but trying to change the system, you know, from the inside or by using the structure that exists as it is right now is a ultimately a losing proposition because you don't hold the keys. You don't get to write the rules. And on these platforms, there are rules. In life, there are no rules, but on these platforms, there are. And clearly they are ready, regardless of, of any semblance of rationality, uh, they're, they're ready to just pull the rug out from underneath you. There's a concept we could spend a time talking about. I'm, I'm not going to get into it right now, but in the future, we need to discuss it. There's a concept called post-activism. And... I think we need to take a good, hard, long look at that because try again, trying to change the world, trying to, to bring about real change in the varying, you know, domination structures that we live within, trying to do so by using the domination structure itself. And let's be clear here, you know, censorship is domination and Twitter engaged in egregious blatant whole cloth censorship, unquestioning censorship. It is a part of the domination structure. Get over this idea that somehow you are doing any kind of grand good on social media. Now, if you're just looking to make minor changes and connect with people online and stuff like this, you know, Hey, you know, that, that, that might actually kind of work, right. You know, having your own little group, like the telegram group for sovereign tech, I think that, that, you know, people really, really get some amazing things out of that. And I'm glad that they do. And I'm not saying it comes from me. It comes from, you know, my, you know, the brilliant listeners. Great. You know, let's do that, but let's not kid ourselves that somehow, you know, using these platforms and trying to reach out to the millions of people on there that somehow you're going to be allowed to actually get any kind of system shaking message out there. No, you're not. And at the end of the day, I think that, you know, based upon why you hear why people are on Twitter or why they think Twitter is important and so on, Twitter is none of those things that they claim because Twitter is ultimately a censorship platform now. 
Thus, it's ultimately useless. I'll be right back with some more Sovereign Tech. We've got some other stuff uh, to get into. Maybe we'll talk about another platform, and then maybe we can get into some fun stuff uh, later on in the show. I'll be right back with more Sovereign Tech. Mad Max is a lone warrior searching for his destiny, while a tribe of lost children wait for a hero. And in a world battling to survive, they meet a woman determined to rule. Hold out for Mad Max. This is his greatest adventure. Mel Gibson in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, starring Tina Turner. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Issues of privacy, security, and social engineering. It's HackSec. You know, I just mentioned the Telegram group. Uh, of course, if you want to join that, and even after what we talk about, and I guess it's kind of burying the, or not burying the lead, but carpet for the horse, I don't, whatever term you want, whatever, <laughs> whatever kitschy term you want to use. Uh, the yes, like telegram, I do. Am I at the end of what the story we're going to get to? Am I still recommending using it? Yep. I'll talk about why, but anyway, if you want to join the sovereign tech telegram group, uh, of course, link is all over in the show notes. All you have to do is have telegram installed wherever you have it installed, click that link. Boom. And it just takes you there. It's great. I don't want to call it magic, but it's great. So, uh, this is a story from bleeping computer, uh, also from actually very fresh October 19th. So just a couple days ago, um, as of this recording, 2020, uh, hackers hijack telegram, uh, email accounts in SS seven mobile attack. Let's read what's going on here. Hackers with access to the signaling system seven SS seven, uh, used for connecting mobile networks across the world. were able to gain access to telegram messenger and email data of high profile individuals in the cryptocurrency business. It, uh, in what is believed to be a targeted attack, the hackers were after two factor authentication login codes delivered over the short messaging system of the victim's mobile phone number. Um, so real quick, of course, telegram is incredibly popular in cryptocurrency circles. I mean, basically, I mean, even like, you know, cryptocurrency news sources all have their own telegram channels and everything. Uh, it's one of the main things telegram really gets used for. And one of its main audiences, there's no doubt about that. Uh, there's plenty of other things that ends up getting used for, but it's also the reason that I have had a telegram account for pretty much as long as there's been telegram. Um, but let's keep reading here. Hackers pulling an SS7 attack can intercept text messages and calls of a legitimate recipient by updating the location of their device as if it registered to a different network, uh, what's called a roaming scenario. Uh, the attack occurred in September and targeted at least 20 subscribers of the Partner Communications Company, formerly known as Orange Israel, all of them involved at a higher level in cryptocurrency projects. Uh, Tashi Ganat... I hope I got that right. The co-founder of Pandora uh, Security in Tel Aviv, who investigated the incident and assisted victims with regaining access to their accounts, told Bleeping Computer that all clues point to an SS7 attack. Pandora Security specialized, uh, anyway, whatever. Um, let's just keep reading here. Uh, the update request essentially asked, or, or here, I'll read here. Gannat told us that the hackers likely spoofed the short message service center of a mobile network operator. Um, to send an updated or an update location request for the targeted phone number to partner. 
Uh, other providers may may still be vulnerable to this type of attack. Anyway, so this is, this is a, a thing, but let's keep reading. The update request essentially asked Partner to send to uh, the fake MSC all the voice calls and SMS messages intended for the victims. Okay, so, you know, it basically it's an interception of these text messages. Okay, it's not exactly simjacking, but it, it lends to a similar effect. Um, so anyway, there's a full breakdown on the technicals around this, but I want to talk about there's a larger problem here. One is, is something that we've already talked about many times on the show. And we've been recommending for years on the show is that if you have the option, get the fuck away from SMS based two factor authentication. That is the easiest uh, takeaway from this whole scenario with SS seven, because a big part of probably what was going on here is that with telegram, you kind of have a, a bit of a web of trust. Okay. Where, you know, you could spoof, um, say, you know, you could, pretend to be this high profile player in cryptocurrency. Uh, and I mean, I could just imagine a lot of scenarios where you could cause a lot of damage or effectively make a lot of money. Um, I did notice also, and ultimately I think it's a good thing that telegram is being very active in taking out spam accounts. Um, I mean, in the sovereign tech telegram group, like there is a, and this is set up by just a dynamite human being, uh, and a great sovereign tech listener. Uh, we set up a, a bot that filters out, you know, a lot of these spam accounts. Cause you'll have people come in and say, Oh, look what's, you know, there's, there's Elon Musk is doing this with Bitcoin, send them the Bitcoin, blah, blah, blah. And so if you had access to a high profile person's account, you know, they probably believe you because there's a degree of web of trust when it comes to, you know, when it comes to telegram. So it makes sense why they would attack that because, and also that gives them a lot of vectors into other areas of what's going on in the crypto space or even access to maybe even access to projects who knows. Okay. But it's, it's a hot target and it's something that you're going to reap some rewards from. Uh, it's a pretty good bet. So we can understand why they wanted to do this. Um, now telegram as far as telegram goes, this is actually a very easy thing to thwart and you can thwart it by while telegram does have the, uh, you know, like the, uh, the one-time pin that it, it'll send you via SMS or, you know, via whatever, uh, to where you can put that in and then you get access to the account. There's also a local password option in telegram where you have to enter. So you've got to get the number from SMS. Okay. When you install say telegram on another device that doesn't belong to the high profile person that you're trying to hack. And then you, you have to enter after you get that, that one time pin, you have to enter a, another password and good luck figuring out what that password is or, or somehow accessing it. Right. So this local password option, um, I can imagine that telegram might make this a requirement. I think that that's a fine and dandy thing. Uh, to do, you know, to, to make happen. Um, ultimately I'd love it if telegram gave you the option to where you could just, you know, uh, use a Yubi key right on your, on your smartphone. Um, and you could do that on, I, you know, Yubi keys work on iOS, work on Android. Um, that would be fantastic if you had to have that hardware security, right? I'm always, that's always the option that I want to run to. So, but the reason I'm still recommending telegram after this happened 
because you're saying it's like, well, why would I trust Telegram if, you know, people can just get through this with an SS7 attack, you know, and, and get the SMS message that gives them the, the one-time pin to get into my account. No, you just got to use Telegram right. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, Telegram, did they do something wrong here? Telegram themselves did not. Again, could this something like this have happened, say, with other messaging apps? Well, a lot of other messaging apps also use SMS 2FA or SMS based 2FA. So it could affect them just as much. All right. Uh, Telegram ha has had that local password option for years, years and years and years. And as many barriers as you can set up between an install of an app and getting access to your account, you always want that. Again, 10th law of thermodynamics, as we say on the show, there is always a trade-off and they will always be so. There is always a trade-off between convenience and security. Which one do you want? It's not convenient to have to remember that, that other password. Well, then say goodbye to your security, like what happened with this hack. That's the story. So it's very easy to keep this from happening to you if you are concerned about that. Um, Telegram, I mean, Telegram in general, I recommend, I've always recommended, not even though they keep saying that they don't want to be a social media platform, right? Uh, though what they've done with channels where they let you comment um, on posts within channels, not within groups, but within channels, that's kind of getting into that Facebook group territory. But you know, they, they say they're a messaging app. They're not necessarily a social platform. Okay. But I've always recommended treating telegram like a Facebook alternative. Now it doesn't have every, it doesn't have, you know, uh, like threaded responses, which would be great. That, that would be the real winner there. Um, but you know, treat it for what you wanted to get done on Facebook, use telegram for that. I don't really recommend trusting, you know, telegram on when it comes to more life and death uh, communications. In fact, maybe we should come up with a new term for that, right? Like lad communications or lad C meaning life and death communications or LDC, you know, life and death communications. Um, I've never recommended telegram for that. I mean, if you're going to do that, you do have the secret chat option, which, which makes it client side encrypted, but regardless, bottom line, this hack that happened could have been prevented if the local passcode option was, you know, done by everybody involved. Okay. Or by, you know, by the high profile individuals, I hope that they did, but it looks like at least some of them did not. So the hack uh, appears to have been successful, but bottom line, you don't have to get off of telegram, just do telegram. Right. Anyway, we will be right back with some more cyber tech. We have more juicy subjects to get into. From Big Finish Productions, Blake 7, the classic audio adventures. I'm taking Liberator in on manual. We'll be in teleport range in two minutes. What the hell was that? Information. Liberator has been attacked. You don't say. Put up the force wall. Confirm. Message to all ground commanders. Initiate the final phase. Let's crush these rebels once and for all. My name is Avon. Ker-Avon. Ker-Avon. Our hostage arrives. 
which you may be unnecessary. As a hostage, it's nice to be superfluous. You can go to Blake7.com to find more of the new adventures of one of science fiction's greatest masterpieces. Blake7 at Blake7.com Your questions, the man of tomorrow's answers. Email questions at sovereigntech.com. Time for important messages. It is time for important messages. And you know, it's been a little while since we've gotten this segment in, but I want to get it in and I want to get it in before, frankly, November 3rd. And you'll understand why when I read the question from the listener. Uh, This actually, ironically, uh, uh, was something that came in through Telegram, which I always make available as an option as well. Uh, And another reason I want to get into it is just in case you think what I was saying about Twitter somehow makes me a Trump supporter. Oh, no. I mean, look, folks, I don't support the political system in any way, shape or form. Okay. Like no, nobody has my support. I don't back anybody. I am not voting. I haven't voted in, I, I hell, I can't remember the last time. <laughs> no, I can remember the last time, but, uh, I haven't voted in, in over a decade. So, you know, I have no skin. Uh, in this game is as far, as far as that goes, like which team am I rooting for? I am rooting for none of them. So I want to get this in to be clear on that as well, just in case you confuse me, but let me, let me read this question. Uh, anyway, anyway, Aries. Yeah, that, that's how the part I want to read starts. Anyway, love the podcast as always. Fuck Trump. LOL. Uh, I do have a question in general. Why do you think people actually support Trump? So we're going to get into a political thing. I mean, look, the, the, the important messages segment, I've always said this. You can ask me whatever you want. It doesn't have to be tech and science related. If you don't want it to be, it could be about history. Many questions have been it could be about philosophy, politics, whatever. I uh, got a great comment earlier today uh, that people loved um, Zomi one underground episode 368, which was all philosophy. And basically they said, Hey, if you want to do an all philosophy show, you go right ahead. And, and, and they'd be there. And I was really, really honored by that. Uh, thank you. But anyway, I, I'm not saying I'm going to do it, but also, you know, I've heard that from quite a few people lately, actually, even since I posted that episode. Um, but let, all right, let, let me keep, keep reading here. Um, I do have a question in general. Why do you think people actually support Trump? Are they all just racists or benefiting too much financially from Trump? Uh, or are they just dumb enough to actually believe the world's most powerful narcissist? Uh, I should add that I live in Australia. I have never been to America. So my opinions run the risk of being somewhat uninformed, but I don't think so. In some ways I can compare Trump to Hitler. Not quite as bad, obviously yet question mark. <laughs> so, uh, you know, should people believe him? I don't know. I, I look around. I don't, I don't see a wall on, uh, on the Southern border of the United States. Uh, I, I thought that was the, the, the big fucking campaign promise, right? Not that I want one there. I don't, but where is it? Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't believe this guy, but I, I think everybody's basically, you know, avoided that. Um, so, but to answer your question, to get into this, uh, why do people believe this, this asshat? And it really, I think it comes down to, again, there's never just one reason, right? There are always multiple factors in anything. Okay. People 
clearly <laughs> do not really care about the truth. I mean, deep down people do, but there is a problem there. And that is, is that people, and, and I think we've talked about this in a recent episode. Uh, I think it was the last episode that I had on or when I had Ellen on people respond to certainty, not truth. People are attracted because they equate certainty with truth because certainty falls under. See, yeah, you have to understand where, where does truth come from? Like what is truth? Not to sound like Pontius Pilate or anything, but what is truth? The general idea, and there's an irony in me calling it the general idea, the general idea of where, of what truth is, is what's called the consensus theory of truth. Basically it's true because what happens seem to affect a large amount of people around you. I mean, that's a very short version of it. I actually have an episode of the user podcast uh, called the light of knowledge, which explains truth. What is real? What is the truth? What is objectivity? And so on. Um, if you want to hear me explain more about that, but the correspondence theory of truth. So in the correspondence theory of truth, that lends itself to looking for certainty to gauge what is true. The problem is, is that certainty and truth are not the same thing. A person can be absolutely certain about something, but also be certifiably mad, right? Which I would argue Trump might be. <laughs> I definitely think he's a sociopath. Um, so, but he sounds, this sociopath in office sounds very certain, right? Whenever he talks. Uh, well, he doesn't always sound certain, but generally he sounds certain enough. And because of that, and maybe because most politicians always kind of tiptoe, not wanting to offend this group or this group. And because he doesn't tiptoe, because he sounds certain people aren't used to that and they respond to it. They, you know, they hell whether they like it or not, it's just that they recognize it and they equate it. They equate this certainty as truth, even when it's not. So um, with that said, I think that's a major part of it. And, you know, this is a, what, uh, what some authors would call a virus of the mind. Once you're aware of it, like constantly check yourself, you can walk away from this episode, constantly checking yourself to you know, okay, wait, now, why did I respond to what somebody said? Is it because they sounded certain or is it because it's objectively the truth? Is there an objective truth? Yes, I think there is, but okay. You need to check yourself. Why are you believing what somebody's saying? And I think you'll be surprised just how often that you are responding to the certainty of their sound, but put, but put that aside because there's that there's another part to this as well. And that is, or there's a couple other parts and that is there are, uh, I feel, I think I can also, I, I, I think you can, you can show the research on the matter that, I mean, this is like almost at the heart of gerrymandering. So you can politicians, particularly for the last hundred years or so have spent more and more time concentrating on voter bases within cities. Now, of course, there's a greater density of voters and so on. It's easier to rezone within cities and all this. Like it, it's, there are, there are perfectly 
as illogical as politics and government and things like that are, there is a logic within that paradigm to, you know, concentrating on cities. Okay. And that's what people have been doing for a very long time. And it's funny. I mean, you know, if you go out to, you know, even get outside of the suburbs, get into more rural areas and I don't know, talk about Greta Thunberg or talk about whoever, whatever, you know, stuff is happening on Twitter. There's a pretty good chance the people you're going to talk to have no fucking clue what you're talking about. You know, they just feel like, wait, wait, what? (laughs) You know, unless it was on, on one of the, you know, certain TV networks, they're they're just, they're not going to know. Okay. What the hell you're saying for about a hundred years, you have, um, you have people who I don't want to call them marginalized. They're not minorities in the political sense that we generally think of. Okay. But you have people who say, you know, not, it's not just farmers. It's not like that, but you have people in rural areas. You have people who perhaps think that, uh, you know, the whole, the whole system's a sham and so on who in 2015 and 2016 were being directly addressed for the first time in about a hundred years. We're being, or well, one may, might be able to argue that Ronald Reagan might've tried to speak to these people, but regardless, for the first time in about a hundred years, those people were talked to, were addressed and they came out in support in droves. And it's not because they 100% agree with everything that Trump happens to say. It's not because, um, you know, they're, they're, they're died in the wool Republicans or anything like that. It's because someone finally talked to them instead of talking to all the city dwellers and what's happening in the cities and blah, blah, blah. And all of the, you know, all the things that, that outcrop from just living in a city, you know, I mean, the amount of tension and stress and all the negative things that come from that alone. Somebody talked to them instead of to the people in the cities. I mean, look, you could say, well, yeah, but people, you know, the Iowa caucus, people come to New Hampshire and they talk to the little people in New Hampshire and blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. They're talking to Boston when they come here, you understand, or they're talking to, you know, the more effete in, uh, in, in say, you know, by Dartmouth or, or, um, you know, pick, pick your town. Trump said things that appeased people who felt like the news industry was full of shit, which, you know, it kind of is <laughs> not just kind of, okay. He appeased people who are wondering, you know, I keep, because look, the average rural person, they hear about all this, you know, racism and all this other stuff that that's genuinely happening, but they hear about all this. And then they look outside their own door and they say, well, yeah, but that's not happening here. What are these people talking about? The world's fine or blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, like, why, why are you taking away my rights because of shit that's not happening outside in my backyard? And so they can't relate to the issues that a lot of politicians were bringing up. They could relate to the issues because he was talking to them that Trump, some of what Trump was bringing up. And that's why they fell for it. It's not necessarily because they themselves are racist. There are plenty of them that are yes. And I don't mean that because inherently because they live, you know, in a rural location, uh, fuck no. (laughs) Okay. I more or less live in a rural location and have for much of my life. I've also lived in cities, but, uh, and you know, not racist at all, but that's those, those, those couple of factors, the fact that he spoke to people 
that had never been addressed or that hadn't been addressed in a good hundred years or so is what got them all on board about it. And, you know, now they're just riding that train and because he keeps doing it, he keeps calling bullshit on things. And, you know, as to where before you had politicians just constantly addressing stuff that was happening in the city that massive swaths of the American population had couldn't relate to, couldn't understand what the fuck you were talking about or complaining about. That's not happening to me. And to them, it's, it's probably not. And so he becomes this very appealing character because of that, you know, toss in the certainty with that. And, and there you go. So it's not an inherent racism again. Absolutely. Yes. He appeals to racists. He appeals to, you know, a lot, a lot of, I mean, if you want to use the term hate groups, fine. He appeals to a lot of those types. There's no doubt about it. Uh, he appeals to, I'm sure there are a lot of, uh, entrepreneurs maybe even that he somehow appeals, uh, appeals to, or, you know, business people that he appeals to, because they're going to make a lot of money off of what he's talking about. There are differing aspects of which he does appeal to that are not, you know, that I would not write off as somehow being, well, they're just people who are never talked to. And now they finally, you know, someone is. And so now they're speaking up or that it's just people being duped by the sound of certainty, you know? It, there's, there are plenty of people where those, if you want to call them excuses, cannot be levied and get them off the hook. But, um, you know, and how much influence does, I mean, the other part too, at, I mean, look, and this is the part that we're never going to know about and that we could guess until we're blue in the face, walking around like Smurfs. When one spends enough time now, I've, I've said this over and over again, uh, me, Brian sovereign, number one, I'm a gamer. Number two, I'm a historian. Number three, I'm a tech journalist in that order. When one spends enough time studying history, what becomes abundantly clear is that history you know, there's the old saying history is written by the victors. Yeah. I don't think that's untrue. That's largely how it's gone, but also history is moved by and no conspiracy here, folks. Like, I mean, if we got to name the names, they are absolutely like real things that exist. Some of them even still exist today. History is a progression of actions by varying secret societies. It is always a small number of individuals that, create, you know, that, that however they dig their tendrils in, um, granted they're, they're not, you know, root striking individuals. Usually if they are, they don't last, but the history of civilization ultimately is a history of motives and agendas of varying secret societies. Now, I mean, we don't have to talk about Illuminati, the Illuminati. We don't, we, don't, 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 don't write me off. You don't get to write me off like that. We're talking about legitimate secret societies and conspiracies. You know, I mean, stuff all the way from, you know, a two brute to, you know, the, the absolute influence of, you know, Freemasonry in the creation of America. And I'm not even necessarily saying that as a, as a pejorative or negative, but when you spend enough time, you realize that that's how it goes. And it's true in every empire from Rome to the Mongols to America to take your pick. Every single one of them, it's true. That, I mean, or ultimately there is influence that comes from, you know, those small groups. And as far as 
you know, what's at play here? What's, you know, is it the deep state versus this blah, 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 whatever. There are likely, you know, small secretive groups that are, and it, it's not just one, it's not some stupid NWO concept. Okay. There's a bunch of them and you know, they're playing their games and that's really what's going on here. So frankly, it doesn't even really, in my opinion, it doesn't even really matter, you know, what Americans think or who they want, you know, as far as what allows for that, you know, crazy ass footage that gets played on news uh, channels all around the world, you know, that speaks very much to what I was just talking about, responding to the certainty, getting finally spoken to and getting recognized uh, and addressing certain issues that groups have felt for a very long time, like the idea that you know, news channels or, you know, news organizations are just arms of the state and straight up lying. Right. Um, you know, fake news, right. That whole crap. Regardless of any truth around that, <laughs> you know, uh, but ultimately it all comes down to what these groups are, you know, wanting and desiring. I mean, do you really, you know, and I don't mean the, the, the question asker, I mean, they're a great person. Uh, I'm I'm saying, you know, does the, does anyone really think that somehow, man, maybe they do that somehow Trump just, you know, yeah, he just rose to the ranks, you know, he just, he did it, grabbed himself by the bootstraps, I mean, which is nonsense. The only bootstraps he grabbed were his daddies. Okay. But do you think that, you know, just any individual can actually become president of the United States and just sit there? You think you don't have to become part of varying groups. You don't have to appease certain aspects of at least Washington, DC. You don't have to, are, are you really? Again, we don't have to, this, this is no Alex Jones. This is stuff that you can, you know, names that you can read on, uh, you know, speaking of those same news organizations that are fake, whatever that you could read right there. So that's a key thing to, to grasp. Is, I mean, ultimately, like, I don't think there maybe on a on a very local level, there is something that resembles an actual democracy. But when you get on the bigger scales. It, it's, it's always some some kind of, you know, secret society or not so secret society that that's that's pulling or, you know, and, and it's the battles between those that's that's pulling the strings. I mean, I, I, I laugh, you know, because when, when you want to bring that up, I mean, that that's kind of the, the, I think the ugly truth, even though there's nothing inherently wrong with secret societies, I think that's the ugly truth that a lot of people don't want to really admit to is that they really don't have control and they're never going to know the names of the people that do. Cause even Trump ultimately doesn't really have control. There's people that he answers to, right. But you know, you get these, these conspiracy goofs who are saying, Oh, it's the Freemasons. This is blah, blah, blah. Okay. You know, and, and I've had conversations with these people and I'll, I'll engage them. And my instant question is when they say that is which ones, which Freemasons do you realize how many different, and I don't mean because like there's one in each city or something like that, or one in each town. Do you realize how many different groups of Freemasons there have been over the past, you know, two, 300 years? even in Italy alone. I mean, and this goes far beyond Scottish, right? York, right? Or any of that crap. I mean, there's tons of them because they keep splitting off because they all have these different agendas and everything. And I mean, boy, looking at the history in Italy, you want to talk about having control over, you know, over the politics there. 
read some of those stories. But then, you know, you say that and people usually Freemasons, they don't know. So bottom line, you have groups with competing interests and, you know, if they can somehow get the populace to sway in their direction or something like that, great. But we, including myself, we have no real idea, you know, of, of what the, 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 the forces, you know, that, that move history, that move politics, that move the money and so on. We, we just, we don't know what those are. And how could we possibly even begin to change them? You know, when we don't know. So, yeah, I, I love the old saying that politics is uh, show business for ugly people. I mean, and, and Trump is one ugly motherfucker. That's for sure. Uh, so, and that's all, but that's all it's, it's show business straight up. Uh, and people, you know, people fall for show business. They have for a very long time. Anyway, uh, I hope that kind of answers your question. You know, I mean, it's, it's a very complex thing. And, you know, if anybody ever gives you only one reason of why people are supportive uh, of the slap nuts in chief there, um, yeah, they're, they're, they're wrong. (laughs) Cause there's never only one reason. There's never only one thing going on. Um, and I always love, you know, reading some of these articles from people like, this is why they're following this. Oh, they're a bunch of stop stop. These are incredibly complex situations. So anyway, I hope that gave some, uh, some, some clarity and maybe, maybe I don't have any hope for this, but maybe this convinced some people to just stop dealing in political solutions overall. Um, I'm not going to complain necessarily. If you do, you know, it's your life. You do what you want with your time. But if I could save you some time and save you some stress and save you some money, My work here is done, but no, I will be right back with some more Sovereign Woo! Hello, Sovereignati. As you know, Sovereign Tech proudly no longer puts content behind a paywall and makes thousands of hours and episodes available to you totally for free. But if you feel that stirring in your cockles or that special feeling in your heart, I beseech you, nay, I implore you, to help the show out by donating. Frequenting our sponsors is key, but donations from listeners like you has always made the show go round and round. You can go to SovereignTech.com to set up an automatic monthly donation, or you can donate via the Bitcoin address in the show notes. And now you can even donate with the Cash app at cash.app and use the money tag SovereignTech. So many ways to help out the show, and I'm honored by all of it, allowing us to build and be the future. Now, Let's get back to the show. Now entering the gaming grid. The latest gaming news, reviews, and retro culture, as only the man of tomorrow can deliver. And here's your host, Brian Sovereign. All right, we need to take a break. <laughs> We've been talking about so much serious stuff throughout this episode. Not all bad, but, um, 
yeah, let's have a little fun. Let's get into the gaming grid. In fact, we might even wrap this show up with the gaming grid because there are a few different things I really want to get into that I want to uh, want to talk about. Uh, opening it up, of course, I mean, we just, we talk all video games here. It's kind of, it's just one of the ways to guarantee that we have fun in the show. <laughs> well, sometimes actually when we talk video games, I'm complaining about something, not a shock to anybody, but, um, you know, we, we get to have some kind of fun. We need, we need to do that. We need to take a break and relax. Uh, not that we necessarily need another screen in our face, but I digress. Um, so a couple things I want to get into at least here. Uh, one is, I guess we'll open it right up. Uh, very excited. In fact, I just saw the gameplay trailer for this today. Mortal Kombat 11. Uh, oh, this is, this is so weird. So on the one hand, okay, with Mortal Kombat 11, now they're coming out with Mortal Kombat 11 ultimate. They are releasing combat pack two. You are getting three really solid characters. I mean, you're going to get more than that, but at least three really solid characters um, in that package that are going to add on to Mortal Kombat 11. Uh, one of them, you know, you have Molina, which I know there was some kind of weird Twitter campaign around. Where is Molina? Where's for fuck's sake. Anyway, uh, you have Molina, you have um, Rain, who I actually like Rain as a character. Uh, always picked him uh, when I would play Mortal Kombat Trilogy on PlayStation 1. Um, but the real winner here is clearly John Rambo. And <laughs> it is pretty amazing. Unfortunately, you know, I, I really wish there was uh, a, a greater degree, a degree of, you know, tag team action because you have... Now you have, you know, you have Arnold as the Terminator, you have the Terminator, you have Rambo, you have Robocop. I mean, you have all these great eighties characters in this game and you know, you just want them to all take on each other. You know what I mean? At once would be amazing, but regardless, I guess you get to do, you know, one V one and you can have fun with that. Uh, but the, I was really, really pleased with the, 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 uh, the gameplay trailer that I saw for, for Rambo. I mean, it, it delivers and it is actually Sylvester Stallone, um, picking up and, and doing the voice, which I think dynamite, you know, I mean, Rambo scene knows no sign of, of stopping anyway. Uh, of course we, we actually, Ellen and I reviewed, uh, the latest uh, Rambo film back when it, it came out in theaters. Remember those, uh, theaters, I mean, <laughs> not Rambo films. Uh, but yeah, anyway, you know, there's a conversation that could be had around this because in one sense, while I really appreciate a franchise not needing to come out with a new game once a year, a la Assassin's Creed, a la Call of Duty, a la Battlefield, whatever. Um, th there is a, there is a... I know the gaming industry in general, and we've talked about it many times during games, during the gaming grid, the gaming industry in general has a real money-making problem these days because of the continual shifting way in which you can even get access to games, meaning that there's a lot of overhead cost, and there's also an ease of publishing that has come ever since, you know, digital distribution has become a thing in video games. Okay. So, you know, and part of that overhead cost was, you know, certainly taking what was needed to make sure that all the developers at the game studio, you know, could get paid and whatever. I'm not saying they were cheating anybody, but I'm just saying in general, 
there are, there's a lot of ways in which the game industry was used to making money. That is impossible anymore. Um, the cost of making a game with what you could call triple a level of graphics has gone through the roof, you know, to movie budget territory. And so you have to engage in a lot of what I would consider nasty practices like in-app purchases and, you know, somewhat egregious DLC and so on, or you just have to keep re remapping, you know, basically on the same engine, uh, the same game every year and come out with, you know, battlefield 27. And that, even though it's in many ways, it's just a skinning of last year's game in many ways, not entirely, but in many ways to somehow recoup the cost of what it take of what it took to develop last year's game and so on. So, you know, you have, there are very real issues on how to make money in gaming. Um, with a game that had the development time and certainly the tremendous, uh, uh, graphics and just, just presentation and what's on offer like mortal Kombat 11 has, um, you know, the upfront cost of, for say the premium edition of the game, which was what 80, 90 bucks, you know, even that they're still kind of losing money on that you know, but they know that they're going to be coming out with DLC down the line. Now, ultimately mortal Kombat 11. If you have been playing this since day one, you could have been, you could have hashed out around $150 all told for this game. Do I think you're getting the value of $150 for the game? Ultimately? Yes. No pun on the ultimate there, but where I think people might feel a little cheated is that you can buy mortal Kombat 11 ultimate and it comes out in November that has all of the DLC, including mortal Kombat aftermath, which a lot of people hashed out. I don't know. What was it, another 15, 20 bucks, whatever for that. You can buy everything for only $60. That's cheaper than the premium edition of just the initial version of the game that came out. And I can see where people kind of get, rub the wrong way over this, where they get very annoyed. Uh, like, you know, what the fuck? Like I I'm, I'm paying $150 for this game, but a person today only has to spend 60. I don't know how this is going to, you know, shake out. Ultimately, I don't mind. I mean, and I get it because here's the thing, right? Like, I think they'd be totally justified in charging $120 or something for mortal Kombat 11 ultimate but they know no one's going to upfront pay $120 for a game. And that's true. We do know that even if you gave them a customized controller, like steel battalion, they're not going to give you, you know, 200, 250 bucks for a game. People just aren't, they're, they're just not going to do it. It's not going to sell well. So we're in very strange territory on what games should cost. Uh, and so really like we're getting into the territory where you're not funding a game anymore. You're basically funding an entire franchise over its lifetime. Um, I mean, smash brothers runs into the same thing. You know, a lot of franchises are, are running into this. I don't have an answer for it. I'm just saying, you know, you, we kind of need to, I'm not saying this is the answer either, but we kind of need to change our expectations. You know, I mean, we talked about this recently in a gaming grid, like, look, games costing 80 bucks on average instead of 50 or 60. That's that's kind of what games need to cost to even begin to cover the, uh, you know, operational cost of a game studio for a triple A game. You can't avoid it. 
And so, you know, where do you go from here? Do you pay more for games or do you say to the developers, hey, no, you don't have to make as complex of games or, hey, no, look, we don't need the, you know, the AAA graphics and everything. I mean, like, like, how does that take shape? We, we live in very interesting times as far as, as all of this goes. Okay. And that, that's really my, my bottom line um, with this, but I will say, I don't mind paying that much for a game, but you know, if it's not mortal Kombat, I'm probably not going to spend it. One game. Let, let's, let's shift gears here. I want to get into a little bit of a game review. One game that I'm glad I didn't ultimately have to pe- spend a, a penny for other than, you know, you have to pay for your Nintendo switch online subscription to get access to it is uh super Mario brothers 35. So this game is, and we talked about it. I did a whole Mario 35th anniversary celebration special uh, a couple weeks back. And the game had yet to come out at that point. Um, but now it has come out. I have played it. It came out at the beginning of October. Um, I have played it, played it a, a fair amount. A lot of people were complaining that why is this game? This is, I mean, it's to call it a Mario brothers battle Royale is kind of oversimplifying things. It's not exactly what it is, but it is also sort of what it is. Okay. So anyway, I'll, I can explain more about the gameplay as I review it. Um, this is, you know, a lot of people were complaining that the game, why is it a limited release? Meaning that it's totally digital. So, it's not like there's a, there needs to be any scarcity. There's no production costs, really. There's only costs of, I guess, running it on the server. But it's Super Mario Brothers 19, you know, 86, 87 graphics. How, you know, how much, <laughs> it just exactly uh, how much, uh, you know, uh, uh, resources is that taking to run those 8-bit graphics? Not much, right? So a lot of people are complaining, why are they stopping the game in March? You know, is it be, I mean, just again, there's no need for the artificial scarcity with this. I'm going to tell you this right out front in my review of this game. And we'll talk about the game a little bit more, but I'll tell you right out front. I see no reason now after playing it for a while to not make it a limited release. Why? Because it's, it's a fun game. It's a good game. It gets more fun the further you get in to, or, you know, like the deeper you get into the levels, the further levels you get into and all this, the further you get along in the game. But there is not really a lot of replayability here. Like th- this is not, I mean, because part of, part of the issue is, is that the, the way that the game works with how it brings on enemies after you, like it uses levels from the original Super Mario Brothers, okay? But it it remixes them in the order that they appear in. But the way that it brings in enemies and everything makes it so that you know, if you're if you're good at speed running, there's times where that can help you in the level having the familiarity, but then there's plenty of times where it doesn't. Um understanding like having good control of Mario is always helpful. So if you you know, are really, really good at controlling Mario in the original Super Mario Brothers game, then there's an advantage there here, you know, with, with being pretty good at this game or being good at this game. But there's just, there's not enough different. And I don't know, I, like, I, and, and the competition aspect of it isn't exactly there either as to where with Tetris 99, which is the nearest corollary to what Mario 35 is, 
where you're taking on 35 other players. Look, there's not, it's not like there's 35 Mario's on the screen. That's why I didn't want to really call it a battle Royale. The game could have been a lot more interesting if there were, um, but there's, there's not. And I know there's already a fan game that did that. I'm well aware of it. Okay. Uh, you know, as far as the Mario battle Royale, but it doesn't really feel competitive. Like as where with, with Tetris, you automatically think of Tetris as being competitive just by the nature of the gameplay. I don't feel like you feel that Mario super Mario brothers, you know, in a, inherently is competitive, but also that you're taking on 35 other people. Like, I don't think there's enough interaction there. There's not enough. And, and as far as differences, so you can get a pow brick, like the ones from uh, Mario brothers two. And that's, and I guess now I think they found out you can unlock Luigi, but that's kind of the thing is, you know, they should be adding in a lot more powers. Like you should be getting, you know, the frog upgrade from Mario brothers three or, you know, all the different suits, the raccoon suits. I know they don't call it the raccoon suit. Uh, you know, all the different suits that, what is it? The Tanuki suit or whatever, you know, you should be able to get a bunch of different powers be, besides just, you know, flower power throwing, you know, flame balls and everything, or having the pow brick. There's just, there's not enough difference there. If you added in those things, it would at the very least make it interesting to replay those levels and then see how those, you know, different powers from other Mario games could, you know, really change the original super Mario brothers game and then give you a leg up perhaps and make it feel a little more competitive against the other 35 or 34 people that you're playing. So yeah, there's, there's not enough different there. And, and I feel I got tired of the game again. It was fun for what it is, but I would absolutely, you know, say, say they didn't remove the game in March, you know, at the end of March, I wouldn't play it past the end of March, not a chance unless they're going to keep adding in new features, but you'd have to keep adding them in and you're going to run out sooner or later. So keeping it limited, having that artificial scarcity, I personally, I think I get why Nintendo's doing this because there's not enough here to keep long-term interest and you'd have to keep baking in way too much, uh, you know, to, and you run out of stuff to bake in, in my opinion, you'd have to start turning it into Ultimately, you'd have to go with like the Smash Brothers model where you'd start tossing in whole other characters, kind of like what they did with Super Mario Maker 2, where you could toss in Link uh, or, you you know, you toss in Mega Man. You'd have to toss it. And I, and I know there's Mario Brothers, like Super Mario Brothers crossover. Believe me, I know that game very, very well. It's awesome. You know, you toss in the guys from Contra, you toss in Mega Man, you toss in whoever, you toss in Samus, right? If they started doing that, okay, like then maybe there's places that this could go, but that's part of what's held the longevity. And that's really what Mortal Kombat 11 was doing. What we were just talking about earlier, where they keep adding in new characters, new characters, new characters. And that's why you'll keep playing the game for years, but you'd have to do that with super Mario brothers. And I just kind of feel like eventually the formula, the jig would be up and people would get tired of it. And it would ultimately get old and there's no storyline to speak of involved with the game. So while Tetris 99 Tetris is just an absolutely magical game. Super Mario brothers is as well, but it's super Mario brothers is not like one where you compete against other people necessarily as to where with Tetris, it's almost inherent or it feels that way. I mean, especially if you ever played the NES version, not just the game boy version. So I don't mind that this game is going to go away. Now, what gets really weird here 
Okay. And if you want to play like, yes, it's worthwhile to play. If you have a switch online subscription, why not, you know, give it a shot. You might, you might enjoy it, but I really, I mean, and they don't even have like a lot of really cool bonus things, like even just like bonus backgrounds that you can earn with, uh, I, I don't know. It, it, there's not enough on offer here. I could see where they could put some things on offer that would make it interesting, but there's no way I'd ever play this game in the long term. As to where I would absolutely play Tetris 99. I still do. I play Tetris 99 all the time. Um, you know, and I, and I could see myself five years from now still cranking up Tetris 99 now and again. So, you know, whatever Super Mario brothers 35 just doesn't have that. It's, it's good for what it is, but I don't have a problem with it being limited because it kind of has to be, I think to stay fresh and to stay replayable and playable going into the future. Now, what's really weird is we got an announcement, uh, just as this is getting recorded, that Nintendo is going to uh, re-release, and in America, really, this will be the first time in English, uh, the very first Fire Emblem game, uh, Shadow Dragon and uh, the Blade of Light, which that's the original Fire Emblem game for the Famicom in Japan from way back when you know, eight bit, the whole thing, just like we were talking about. Now it's getting released December 4th for the switch. It's not on switch online, which I think is very strange. That's very interesting that they're not putting it there that I don't even know what to make of that just yet. They're actually doing a whole like deluxe edition release where you get a poster, like a, a faux cartridge and box art and, you know, all this different stuff. But the game's only, if you want to buy it digitally, it's only $5.99. The anniversary edition, like the physical box, and it's not even a physical edition. It just comes with the code to get it on or to get it in the eShop. Uh, it's like 50 bucks, which that's reasonable. But it's $5.99. Yep, you buy it. Here's the rub. The game will only be offered until March 31st of 2021. I think that's really weird. Like, I, I, I got it. I, I just made the case for why you would make Mario 35 a limited release. I see no reason why the first fire emblem game, which again, has never been out in America, you know, previously, I mean, you can get, you know, ROMs that are fan translated and all that, but an official release from Nintendo hadn't happened. Why make that a limited release? Maybe what's ultimately happening here. And this is bringing it full circle. Like we talked about with mortal Kombat, is that even Nintendo is starting to wonder, okay, how do we make money in games today? And maybe this is what they're doing is they are testing out the idea of limited releases digitally. I mean, yeah, it's the Disney vault scam, no doubt. Okay. Uh, but maybe this is like a new monetization strategy that, that they're going for. I cannot, there cannot be a good reason why this is happening, you know, and, and it's not new for Nintendo. Like they did the, the GBA ambassador program for the Nintendo 3ds when the original new Nintendo 3ds, I think it was came out and it had the virtual console. You had to like buy the 3ds within the first year or something like that. And you would essentially get access to, um, to be able to buy game boy advance games in the 3ds eShop, um, for a virtual console on there. But if you bought a 3DS anytime after that, you would not be able to buy those GBA games. Now, clearly that's an incentivization to move hardware. I understand that. Um, and I guess they're just going to give it a shot with, with, you know, with, with digital games now. Uh, it's a very strange move. I, I, I just cannot fathom the reason for them doing this, but that said, 
Um, I have played fan translated versions of the original fire emblem. And that is a, that is an awesome game. I think eight bit RPGs are very charming. Um, I'm a big fan of like the, you know, the original dragon warriors or what would later, of course, you know, and around the rest of the world is called dragon quest. Uh, the original final fantasy games, I think on, on Ness are awesome. I love that styling. It's a styling part of, or it's, it's a direction of styling that I like to mimic in my own games that I, uh, that I develop. Um, so I'm totally supportive of this coming out. I think it's a great move. It's just both a odd that they're not putting it on switch online. You'd think it'd be a great incentive for switch online and B that they're doing the limited release until March of, I mean, that's only like three, four months that it's going to be available. Very, very weird. I don't have any answers on that either, but it's still a welcome release. I'll take it. Uh, you know, I mean, is, is this, is this just a move to, I don't know, push people to get their hands on switches, uh, so that they can buy this game, you know, before the end of the year. I mean, that those are the only things that I can come up with is that it's very similar to what they did with the GBA ambassador program, where it was to push, you know, new three DSs. Well, this is here to push switches. But I just, I don't think that this would be, I don't think there's enough people out there. Maybe there's a few people on the fence who are saying, yeah, uh, oh, oh, they're, they're only going to release that, that, you know, the, the original fire emblem for switch. Well, I'll buy it now because if I don't get it before March 31st, I, I won't be able to buy that game. I just don't think there's that many people out there who don't already own a switch. I don't know. It, 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 it's an odd thing. Again, the, the message here. We live in gaming. We live in very interesting times. And ultimately we are going to be shelling out the gelt for, <laughs> for <laughs> while the game industry figures all of this shit out. But anyway, uh, that's what we do Sovereign Tech for to help figure shit out. <laughs> or at least at least help navigate a little bit uh, the, the, the wonderful modern world we live in. And put that in air quotes, folks. Anyway, uh, thank you so much. Uh, if you want to donate to the show, of course, you just hit up donate.sovereigntech.com. Just go to sovereigntech.com and you can find the donate tab there. I'm very honored uh, by the many that have donated lately. It really, really helps out the show. And, of course, please frequent our sponsors. And we'll wrap this one up for this week. I will see all of you. Woo! Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech, an Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble.